Welcome to Elite Rugby SNC Podcast, the best podcast talking all things rugby and strength and conditioning. At Elite Rugby SNC, we provide athletes with strength and conditioning programs that provides you with everything you need to become a beast and take your game to the next level. No matter what stage of the year or season, Elite Rugby SNC has a program for you. You can try before you buy, so try our seven-day, seven-dollar trial to get a taste of what we offer here at Elite Rugby SNC. So take your game to the next level, become a beast, and join Elite Rugby SNC today. G'day, Ben. How are you? Yeah, really well. Thank you, Kieran. Um, enjoying Easter. Had a couple of sleep-ins and been able to do a few more things with a bit of time away from working football. How about yourself? Yeah, it's been it's been nice having a, an extra long weekend and you know being able to sleep in as well and sort of recharge and also get some things done that are sort of you know have been in the back burner that you're like, oh yeah, I'll get it done soon, but you you finally have the chance to get it done now. So it's so it's been nice. Yeah, yeah, all those things you've been procrastinating about, well, you've got no excuse because you've got the time. Mm. Yeah, especially before uh, next weekend where round one of the Aussie rules um, starts. So weekends will be quite hectic from now until I think it's August, October-ish type thing. So got to be um, yeah prepared and make sure I'm using my weekends well. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get started in for today's podcast, which is going to be about using GPS metrics and, and GPS systems, what did you think of Eddie Jones' first Wallaby squad for 2023? Yeah, he's, uh, he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He's left a few people out to, and look, this is very early days yet, to motivate some people to see how they respond and then see the reaction. Um, and we saw some players react quite well to that. Um, yeah, at the moment, he's probably gone with a, a bit more tried and tested type people and made maybe one or two sort of bolters, which is always going to happen, as we saw with the Wookiee prop in a... Um, in his first year and then a rookie back in their first year as well. Um, and that's to give them a bit of confidence or just to earmark them that, you know, there's potential higher duties in the future. So don't leave Rugby Australia's sort of net at this stage. Um, well, I think closer to the World Cup, you'll see a few changes again from that squad. I think it's just the initial shock and awe to motivate and to identify and highlight to people that you, we think you have a future. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree. It's it, it's been a very interesting, you know, few days to digest that squad and see some key players not get selected, and just like you said, them um, go out there on, on on Super Rugby and actually perform quite well and sort of you know hit back at Eddie to say, hey, I definitely deserve my name in that squad um, for the future um, squads that you um, pick going forward for the World Cup. And though, yeah, a few you know, head scratches there. You're like, why are you picking that person? Why couldn't you maybe pick them as a, a shadow squad player to, to get them, uh, to get them in there and give them some experience. They don't necessarily have to be in the 33. Um, they could have just been those shadow players. Like I'm a big fan of Noah and I, I want to see him in that number 10 Jersey. I don't think keeping him out is going to be the best thing for him, but he did respond quite well and he's got to respond um, in the next sort of month or so when the Brumbies do play some tougher opposition, especially the New Zealand teams that will really give Eddie a good insight. If Noah can really handle that pressure and then get selected into the Wallaby squad, but it's good to see some younger players get a go, you know, like we don't, 
like never want to see younger players getting the opportunity because who knows what they can do in an environment like that and giving belief, you know, they could be the next big thing. And if you don't give them a go, you you sort of don't know. So I do like the um, that nature of it as well, because I think it's been something in the past for the Wallabies. We really haven't given these younger players a genuine opportunity or even just a sniff of a chance. We sort of um, brush them off pretty quickly. So it, it is nice to see some young blood in there and, who knows what's what's going to hold for the next Wallaby squad, and um, it's going to. I hope those boys, when they do go up and do the three day camp up in Queensland, I'm pretty sure it is, that they enjoy it, learn, and see where they, um, you know, put like hold themselves in that top thirty three, and if they can sustain that and, and keep their spot. Yeah, and the key point is how deep are we into the Super Rugby round at the moment? Oh. we're halfway now. So. Yeah, halfway. So a lot changes. You know, people become unavailable, people's performances dip, some improve. So don't worry, that will change over time as well. It's not in concrete, but um, it's just nice that people are talking about the Wallaby squad and uh, people coming to the Wallabies in the future. It's a, it's a nice problem to have at the moment. Yeah, it's been very interesting. Also, something that I didn't write down, but we can quickly touch upon is, you know, Eddie sort of um, putting a hand out to rugby league players to see if they want to come over and join uh, rugby union and it's been interesting to see the backlash that has come from that and like rugby league really kicking up a stink and i think they forget like they they take a lot of talent straight out of school from rugby union you know they they do it before unions even done anything and but if union go do it to them it's the worst thing in the world they kick up a stink they uh, put joey under the bus saying oh he's just taken for the money and all that not for the enjoyment and all that it's just it's just really interesting to, to see those um you know media articles and um the, the fight between keeping players and letting players go uh, the key part is it's a media that they're fighting like the media are fighting for relevance themselves they're fighting for their positions and whoever's the most sensational gets the most news stories so you know that's just media trying to put their hand up as well um and make it a, a non-story into a story people change mm. sports people do things people change jobs change careers it's just that they're famous and there's a bit of uh, money involved um, all of a sudden everyone's an expert people go to and from each game um, whatever <laughs> that's why I said it. I like both games it's you know they both have games have their strengths and weaknesses and uh, you know a rugby world cup is a massive draw card versus you know the state of origin where two people are playing uh two teams are playing you go to a world cup and the best countries are playing versus yeah so oh, there's draw cards for each and um if people that like sport don't mind people that only like one sport do mind 100 mm, and it's going to be interesting to see how Joey sort of develops himself over these next uh, few years when he does make the switch to union I think he's going to exceed expectations but when he does eventually go back to rugby league he's just going to dominate i think he'll learn a bit more about himself in union and and fine although like have those fine skills um you know increased um and just sort of put his best foot forward and go back to rugby league and, and sort of show off those skills that he's learned from union well yeah, i'm working with a, a coach at the moment who has played both games and predominantly been coaching rugby league for the last few years and he actually went and watched uh, the brumbies game his comments was, gee, the game's changed. Gee, they play flat in the line. Gee, the forwards have really good skills and can play flat at the line. At, at rugby league, they're used to having that gap um, with the defence and they don't like playing at the line. Well, in rugby union, you've got no choice to. So you find motor skills actually 
your catch pass develop and there's less space. So that's something you can take over to league, uh, particularly with your goal line attack um, when, you know, they don't have to go back as far. It's the hardest place to attack from. So you'll take some skills from that. And each has their their benefits, like uh, rugby league with their dual hitting so that they're winning. Both people are trying to, two people are trying to contact at once so they can't make metres. Like you can take that defensive work back to league as well for close to the line. So there's many things you can learn from both games. And I, I've seen rugby league players come across the, the first year they struggle with um, their dexterity and catch pass skills because they're not used to doing catch pass under pressure. So if you do take that back to league, uh, once you've played some union, you're going to be a better asset. Plus you have to develop a kicking game if you're part of a back three as well. You know, mm. you, your wingers and fullbacks in league don't have to kick, while in union you have to. So that's only going to give them a greater attacking skill set if they do switch back to the code as well. Yeah, and there's some good stories, you know, people who have come over from league or have gone from union to league, and you could just write a whole list like Tom Wright or Cora Beatty, like, and then the, probably the most successful one has been Sonny Bill Williams. You could argue that he was at the, at the top of his game when he did leave league to come over to union and then just used all those skills he learned from league to union and then learned, learned some more skills and then increased his game tenfold and yeah. then go back to league and yeah, just sort of jump between the two codes, but he, he could do it so easily because he knew he knows how to play both games and he knows how to bring skills from both to be the best uh, person on the field for him. Yep, exactly. Why you use small-sided games in uh, those sports to develop from different <laughs> skills, like you want them to actually develop in more than just uh, you know black and white rugby league or rugby union skills. You want them to have multifaceted skills in identifying space and. Um, decisions under pressure and you have to set up a whole lot of different drills and scenarios to it. So, yeah, mm. more people should do it. 100%. So today we're going to be talking about GPS tracking unit, units and the metrics they produce. If you don't know what a GPS unit is, if you just watch any top elite sport with rugby union, league, AFL, it's that nice little thing that's sticking between their shoulder blades, that little you know, rectangular thing that you see there, that's that's where the GPS units sit and um, they're tracking the metrics that they're getting from that, that game or training. So it's become so popular now that pretty much every single sport is going to be using a GPS system, especially in rugby union. It's become really, really important the last sort of 10, 15 years. Can you provide our listeners with a summary of why people or why people and why teams are using um, these GPS system and GPS units um, for their sports? Yeah, so probably going back from my history, I started using them back in 2011, so quite a long time ago. Um, and the whole idea is it, we've got assumptions about the games that we play, like league union, um, Aussie rules, soccer, uh, you Basically, you're doing a whole lot of observing the play, the work-to-rest ratios, the high-speed met metrics, the acceleration, you know, how, how many Ks they do, um, all these different thresholds that you're looking for. And you make assumptions based on observation. Having an individual GPS unit is you can put them on each player and then you can, uh, A, make a mean of the team. And I like to say a mean means nothing because no one ever performs at the mean. And then you break them up into positional groups uh, to work out the workload from games within the positional groups. And then you can also go back to then do down to individuals like who's got a really good acceleration, high speed, uh, max velocity, who runs the most, who 
is um, uh, well conditioned to handle certain workloads and then who's going above or below those thresholds. So that's the whole idea. And it's meant to get team position, then individual metrics out. And what you do is you reverse engineer those metrics and then you develop your design of your training week on your how you'd like to train, what percentage of the game you'd like to do at what intensities on each day leading up to a game to ensure good workload. And then when you're designing drills, you have you create the predicted what you'd like them to do in terms of acceleration, the distance, meters per minute and so forth within each drill. Um, and then you look at, did we achieve that or not? And the whole idea is that with the GPS, you can condition people for the sport without just doing running. You can make the drills, whether it's skills, small sided games, any of those drills be the way that they get conditioned. So the more sport specific actions versus uh, running top ups needed. Um, but I could keep talking a long time about that. And it, it sort of goes through, and it depends on your model. So some people use it purely as a monitoring tool where they go, oh, they've done this much distance, this much high speed, I need to pull them out of this, okay? That's a medical model. Um, that assumes that people have a limitation on what they can do. The other extreme is you only use it for a prediction. Um, so what you do is prescribing your drills, go, I want this drill at this many minutes to have this many accelerations, this much high speed, and this many meters per minute. So you use it to prescribe the drills and then you measure, did you achieve that? Ultimately, you need to use it in both ways, to prescribe your drills, then to see if you've met that, and to use it to monitor your overall workload that's happening to your team. Are you exposing them to the right intensities at the right time in your training week? No, it's, it's a very good insight right there. And I think you've answered the why, you, it, why it's important to use it and then what are you doing with the data during the week and during the, that block to understand how to better use the uh, use the the metrics that are used for the team, but more importantly, each individual playing position as well, because not everyone's going to be doing the same workload. And during the week, you need to understand, okay, you know, me and Ben are different physiques and we probably play, we did play different positions. So Ben might need to do a um, bit more running compared to me, but I might need to do a lot more short, sharp um, type of efforts. Yep, exactly. Then you start and then you even come down to, yeah, I haven't met some metrics in a training session. Uh, do I need a top up of max velocity? Do I need a top up of accelerations because I haven't met the metrics that I was meant to on that day rather than trying to push it onto another day? Is it the correct time to do it or do I have to add it into another session because you know adding it now is not going to be a benefit? That's the fun side of it as well. Mm -hmm. especially for those players who maybe only got five, 10 minutes or potentially were left out of the squad, you need to make sure that they're still getting the correct training load um, that they missed so that they're not falling behind at all. Yeah. And when you look at correct training load, it's you, um, you look at the important metrics, acceleration, high speed exposure. Um, you know, you might not, you might miss out on the total volume. You also need to ensure that they're, doing some contact work as well. So they've got, actually got that change of direction into tackle or avoiding and leg drive through contact. So even you have to keep making sure that they work on that. And if you can't, then you have to match that with acceleration work that leads to that as well.
Awesome. So during your time at the Brumbies, what units did you use there? And how did these units sort of compare to the rest of the market? Because it is quite a big market now with GPS units, and it can be hard to understand if I'm going to purchase these items for my club, which one should I go with? Yeah, so my experience with uh, GPSs probably goes from uh, sort of Vikings Club where we use GP Sports um, and Adrian Fascioni invented GPS tracking. So he's in Canberra, invented that first GPS company. So we went along with that. Um, and most of rugby union in Australia at that time was GPS. And then he sold that to Catapult, that system. Um, and then we sort of used Catapult. So how it works in the rugby um area like rugby union we have national programs so they have all of league deals so australian rugby is signed up to catapult and, and catapult provide gps's to the national programs and all the super rugby programs and then the academy system so we all use one system which i think is fantastic when you're feeding a national team because then the, all that information and all those metrics and the units are exactly the same so you can take a look at that information of athletes as they move up the chain from academy to super rugby to, you know, sevens or um, under 20, Australian under 20s or the Wallabies or um, Australia A. It's good that it's using the, all the same system and same company because you you want to avoid the error that does come with each unit um, and then, then each, you know, brand of company as well because if one squad is using something else and you're using this, who knows which one's a bit more accurate and you might not be producing or, or even getting the same metrics as well. And then, then it could be really hard to sort of compare programs and also playing positions. Yeah. And look, they do a whole lot of validation type work, but what we used to do is sometimes put, put two units on someone and see how close they were. And we've done that before where we've gone, when we are evaluating different companies, once when you get a chance, you put one unit, uh, a unit, of one company on a person, a second unit on that person, and you might, you know, do seven or eight people like that, so you can actually see. And there are some differences, but it's people scientifically they go, oh, it's not valid. You're missing out on that. It's yeah, but it's much better than guessing and not doing it. Like mm. a lot better. So, um, I was lucky to be working a time where you programmed without GPS, so I'm able to program with or without it. Um, but now, yeah, it definitely made, makes a big difference when you do know that. And just the education of coaches at the right workload at the right time, getting the right result. And also the players, sometimes players can drown in the information. So you have to be slowly educate them up as well. So that's a history of the units that I've used and what rugby history I've used. No, it's good. And I like the point of it's a it's a guide for training. It's not sort of you, you're living and dying by the sword, but it's helping you guide your training. But you also have a well-developed coaching eye to understand, you know, before I was even using these systems, I could sort of have a really good understanding of what this training session needs to look like and what it doesn't need to look like. And if players are overtraining or undertraining as well, you can sort of get a good vibe from that. And there, and now that you can still understand that, but you've also got the metrics to back it, back it up and say, hey, this is, hey, we're not actually uh, meeting the, the load that we need to. We, we actually need to increase the next training session so we're not dropping off our fitness or anything like that. Yeah, to give you an idea of how good it gets, I know Dan Hooper at the Brumbies Academy, we used to have little bets and he was in like, 10 to 5% of all the metrics that was happening in a session just by watching it and his association with using it for a while. And now Dan McKellar wasn't too far off either. That actually almost guess 
what the training session is. So it gives you validation. It gives you a better coaching eye for measuring workload as well, the longer you use it, which, you know, they're just probably gives us an idea of how good humans are at taking in information and actually watching it as it comes in. But there's sometimes when you completely get it wrong as well. So that's where the GPS really plays its part. Mm, 100%. So with the GPS units, they do provide so much information. It, it can become very overwhelming. And you go to the dashboard and you see all these different things and you're like, shit, which things should I be focusing on? What shouldn't I focus my attention on? So what are the key metrics coaches and athletes should focus on when assessing data from GPS units? First of all, it comes back down to your game model. Okay, what is your game model? Um, If you've got a small team, you're going to look at more speed, acceleration, uh, that type of work. Um, If you've got a big team, you're going to try and make them fast anyway, so you're probably going to focus on that. But the key thing is... looking for people at first went, oh, how many Ks did they do? Yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah. If I could walk and get Ks, I could jog, I could get Ks. I could sprint, I could get Ks. So the first thing is setting up um, speed bands. So, and that depends on your club and your organisation. I know from history, high speed running in rugby union in Australia used to be uh, start at five metres per second. Um, very high speed meters was 7.5 meters per second, but I think they moved it down to two. Um, and then that just gives you different speed bands. So A, you're breaking it up. Then another metric you look at, which is quite important, gives you a sign of the intensity is the meters per minute. So how many meters did they get per minute in that drill? So the higher the meters per minute, the higher intensity. And the next thing you tend to start looking for, which is fantastic in Something if you're a horizontal power sport, rugby league and rugby union are, um, is accelerations. And there's always a little bit of arguments, what, what threshold. So an acceleration is taking yourself from a certain speed up to another speed. Could be off the mark or it could be a gear change. Um, uh, and looking at that, some people have used two, two and a half or three. Lately, I've been using three because that just gives you some serious intent. Um, and accelerations. And then there's another thing, depending on what system you've got. Now with catapult, it is um, acceleration density. So it's your acceleration, deceleration, and change of direction. So your changes in inertia, whether you're increasing inertia, decreasing it quickly, moving it laterally. Um, and they're the type of things you look at. So if you're looking at that, accelerations, different high-speed bands that you want, and then your metres per minute, and then your total distance covered. Usually you've got it covered fairly well. And then people, some units or companies will have metabolic load, which is fantastic working out how much metabolic load uh, or demand was from that sport. And that in- includes accelerations, decelerations, change of directions, or high speed bands. That gives you an, an idea of the energy requirements for that session and that puts a lot more weight rather than just flat normal Ks. And depending on how fancy you get, um, some places used to use a thing called peak game intensity. So they'd look at metrics of accelerations, high speed meters, meters per minute, then break them up into different positional groups. So your forwards have need a lot more accelerations, your backs might need a lot more high speed running, and that would be uh, peak game intensity. So you're playing above the game intensity. And people use spreadsheets to do that. Um, and the, 
I know the Brumbies have moved on to a thing called metabolic load and they've created a formula to work out how metabolically hard that session was because you can have a hard intensive session, which is XLD cell change of directions in small spaces or an extensive, which is more your high speed bands. So that the metabolic load could be similar, but they're putting different pressures on your body as well. Mm, there's a lot to digest from that that answer, but it's produced a lot of you know golden nuggets as well. Some some good ideas there, and just better understanding what's what are the metrics you need to understand. And definitely coming over to to Aussie rules, it's a, a big focus is the total kilometers. It's how many meters did they run? You know, in total, like okay, we've got say at least seven kilometers on average. You know, but most of that could be, oh, sorry, not most of it, a big chunk of it is just walking and jogging. So it doesn't really make up the whole picture when you, you know, um, report back to the coach and saying, yeah, it was seven kilometers. Sweet. That's what we wanted, seven Ks. But hey, where there's many more metrics that are more important than just that um, total volume of training. And for this current system we're using now, it's not Catapult, I won't name names. Um, it's not too bad. It, it gives a really good um, guess, I would say, and, and sort of understanding what training is. But the main things we're, we're trying to focus on is those that hard running, the high speed running, um, the sprint distance, and also the sprint efforts as well. And what we're yeah. finding is we're doing a lot more compared to an average game. So I've got the averages from uh, the first five rounds of last year, and then also the trial games are actually doing you know more high speed running meters and sprint efforts in training so when it comes to game day the the athletes are really uh, well prepared for that and can able um, uh, handle that load but also increase the the game intensity to come to previous years so how important is it to sort of you know overreach a little bit um with, with that training so that game day data that you have you want to overreach them and expose them a little bit more but not too much and how important is that um during say the pre-season but also just during a, a normal week of training as well so uh, our job as a performance coach is to produce a bit of performance so our whole mantra really is to create a team that it has can handle more workload at a higher intensity at more volume than our opposition, okay? That's our job. So we've got to slowly move that. And people can handle amazing amounts of work. It just depends on the ramp. Well, the physical shape you've got them into, where you need them to be, and how long a time you've got it. Uh, the longer the ramp, the more chance of you getting someone there. But yeah, our job is to basically, I used to have a little saying is, uh, Condition at the extreme, skills are done at the mean. So that means we find out the absolute extremes of a game. We do our conditioning on the metres per minute, the acceleration, the density of that. We extend, slowly extend that greater than what you'd see in a game. Have a rest and be able to do that. If you've got three exposures of that normally in a game, we'd make the team able to do four or five and for a minute longer than normal. Okay, that's where you get them up to. All the basic normal skill work should be done at a mean of a game. So the game's mean metrics is how you normally train. So, And then you've just got to work out if every time you increase the intensity, you've got to decrease volume. So if your intensity goes up, well, you've got to decrease volume in some way because we're conditioning for the hardest part of the day, the, the game, and our normal skills, activities, and teamwork is done 
at a normal game, okay, so that they can go from normal, normal game, pour so much pressure, workload and demands on the opposition, rest, do that several times, they will break. That's the idea. So I think hopefully I've answered that question there. No, you definitely have. And it's sort of, uh, you, you might have already answered the next question, but how should coaches use the GPS data gathered from training and games to best prepare their players during the week? I think you sort of hit the nail on the head, but is there anything else that you can sort of think of? Yeah, you always have predicted. So what you're doing is you you want to uh, predict what that training session should look like in terms of workload, total distance, metres per minute, um, high-speed running and the accelerations that you want to achieve. And then from there, you dive down to each drill. Um, in which drill are you getting these activities? Then you take a look uh, after a little while and go, well, this drill isn't performing to the level that we wanted. This drill isn't performing. This one is actually over. We need to pare this down a little bit. This training session is above or below. And you're constantly uh, moving that and trying to actually adjust that in little fine ways to get a better. And then you're setting up your training week like you might have a seven-day turnaround. And it's up to you as a, a coaching group in your sport. You might decide. Um, we've got two training sessions this week. We'll On a Tuesday, we've got 75% of the volume at 110%, uh, 120% of the intensity of the game. On a Thursday, we might go, we've got 40% of the volume at 130% of the intensity of the game. And then you go, okay, is that model working for us? Is it not? And that's how you constantly plan. Within that, within those drills, uh, you might have a four-minute drill that's 180%. You might have another drill that's, it goes for 12 minutes, it's uh, 90% or something like that. But overall, you're just working on those pitches um yeah and it's hard it's complex but it's not daunting it's actually quite fun to do when you you and yourself and a coaching group get that i can remember in uh from 2011 to 20 i think it was 2014 i think we lost six games when we messed up our workload so it was highly when we messed up our workload the players actually didn't perform that well so when we got it right, we were winning something like 85, 90% of the games. So just those six or seven games when we messed up that workload, yep, that's a nice problem. So you, you can start really fine-tuning it. Mm, no, it's awesome. And I think we've painted a really good picture for everyone to understand the importance of GPS units, why we're using them, and how to use them. So now we're going to go into a scenario of the preseason to really delve into this topic. So the scenario, we've got our new strength conditioning coach and just a basic rugby union um, team. They've got 12 weeks until the in-season starts, so start of round one. They're training Tuesday, Thursday, and they also have a Saturday session, but that's just an individual-led session, and you have access to previous training and match day data. So before the preseason begins, what should the SNC coach do to best prepare for week one of the preseason training? Okay, how long have they had off? Let's say it's just post-Christmas, so let's say the boys have had three weeks off. Okay. What grade? What age? What's their run, uh, running exposure? Who's taught them how to run? Let's just, say first, let's just say first grade. Age bracket is open, you know? It could yeah. be higher and low, so. Yeah. Um, have they been taught run tech before? Yeah, they're, they're pretty decent, pretty well-established yeah. clubs, so. Okay. Well, and the reason why I do that question there, and it's not loaded, is 
yeah, when you're looking at um, volume, the how well someone can run comes into it. The better someone is at running, the better running mechanics they have, the more load tolerance they have because biomechanically they're putting less load on their body because they're actually performing really well. They're not putting their leg out in front when they run and decelerating. They're not running out the back and putting lots of pressure on their hamstring. So all of a sudden, if they run poorly, the workload that I can give them is less. So that's probably the fundamental thing important. What I'd organise is day one, Bronco. Let's see how uh, you warm them up and look at their running mechanics, which will decide. Then you take a look at their running performance on a Bronco. And from that point uh, onwards, from the Thursday onwards, I'd have an idea of how to set up workload. So just say, and this is an extreme case. So with Vikings, I'd expect the players to turn up first session of the year, able to play a first grade game. Thursday, you turn up, I expect you to be conditioned to play a first grade game. Yep, you might not pull up that well from it, but that's the level you've got to be at. If they're not willing to do that, they probably shouldn't be a first grader. Um, in saying that, if it's a team that's not used to this, you'd work backwards from a game. So you're probably going to be playing trolls. So if you've 12 weeks, you've probably got three trolls, have you? Yep, let's assume so, um, on the back end of the preseason. So you've got nine weeks. So you've got two blocks here. You've got four weeks. Um, and then basically you've got another, so you could actually five weeks in almost a three, four-week block. So I'd start with, they all should be able to at least handle, Tuesday should be a harder session. Thursday, a little bit less. Um, Saturday should be a, a, a session that they can do by themselves. Um, I would start aiming at probably 70% of the game in terms of workload and the intensity on both those nights and then slowly build that up over time. And I'd move from uh, going from lo uh, longer distance with shorter rest to shorter distances with shorter rest and build that down. So I'd build my metrics with my GPS. So I pretty much know from a, say, from a first grade game, they're probably going to do... Um, depending on what club they're at, they're probably about five and a half to anywhere to seven in a rugby union match, depending on their position. Um, and based on that, and I'd probably aim for knowing that the average game is about 80 to 100 metres per minute, depending on how well you play, more like 80 in a club environment, and start building it from there. So hopefully that's answered the question in a roundabout way. Hi, everyone. We just want to take a quick break from this episode. We hope you're enjoying this episode so far and all the content we have produced. We appreciate all the support from our listeners and followers so far. If you haven't already, sign up to Elite Rugby SNC blog today. We provide free exclusive content every single week to our subscribers. You'll find our website link in our bio below. Remember to like, subscribe, and share Elite Rugby SNC on all social media platforms to all your family and friends. Thanks again for all your support, and now back to the episode. Yeah, it has. And something that you already talked about is also, you know, talking to that head coach and really understanding the gameplay and tactics that they're trying to do is which you touched upon at the start of the episode. So just making sure that you understand that and, and putting in the drills that you can best achieve those goals from the head coach and also making sure that you're looking at the drills throughout training and understanding, are they doing too much? They're not doing enough. How can I adjust my training volume and, and drills to best help the team and, and best progress the team as well? 
Yeah, well, that's, and I probably should have said that there. My first few weeks is usually observing how coaches coach. Um, have I got a coach that's really hard? They no rest, anything like that. They move quite quickly. So they've got lots of volume. Do I have a coach that does a lot of slow, um, close, slow drills so they've got no running exposure? What is my coaching group that I'm dealing with like? Because then you have to be the person that ramps it up or pairs it down or provides what's missing in the program. And that's you know, your 15, 20 minutes that you have um, won't make up for 80 minutes of other stuff. But what you can do is try, while you're trying to influence and increase or decrease drills with the coaching group, you can be mitigating the risk of your performance by providing things that aren't provided by the coaches. Mm, 100%. So what are you trying to achieve during the preseason in regard to training loads? Are we trying to, like you said, it really depends on, on the team that you're coming from, but would you necessarily start off quite low um, and then slowly build up or, or are we really trying to sort of hit the ground running with that team um, as well? But I think you've already answered that, but just from a basic standpoint, from a coach who really isn't sure, what should they do? Should they go a bit higher or, or a bit lower? Um, I'd aim to get higher as you go, but yeah, it, it, that's really hard, isn't it? That's a, it's a dilemma. So it's a really good question. Um, I'd probably start, and I've always traditionally started a bit, a bit higher than people like, because then I'd see what their group of athletes are like mentally and physically. Um, and, you know, rolling the dice a little bit more, I don't mind. Because you can always pair back and give it a little bit more risk, uh, take away from stuff if they can't handle it in the next session. Especially in a club environment, to be honest. You're not training twice a day. You're not playing training two days in a row. Like, you can probably, uh, if you've got a decent level of conditioning there, you can probably go a little bit harder than people traditionally like. And remember, our job is to, push the boundary a little bit in safely so that other teams can't keep up. Yeah. I, I like that point of exposing them to maybe something just a little bit higher, but nothing ridiculous in terms of um, training load, but just a little bit more that gets them a bit uncomfortable to understand. Yeah. The mindset of the playing group and see if they do have any good habits or bad habits. It's something that I used or, or do with conditioning games. And I think that's what um, a really good thing of uh, is using conditioning games to really understand your playing group. And if you purposely, you know, put in a bad rule or make some multiple bad calls or be inconsistent with your, like how you're refing that conditioning games, that's where you can really understand the playing group. And something that, that I've done in the past, but I did it with my AFL group this year and, at the end of them, I had to talk to them. I was like, you know, the reason I was making those bad calls was to understand you as a player. And what did you do straight away? You complained to the ref and you were or umpire in AFL, sorry. And you were just, you know, talking back. You weren't reacting. You were, oh, sorry, you were reacting to the ref, but you weren't reacting to the play and just playing on and letting it go. So I think it's really good if you did that during the week, but also adding those conditioning games to really understand are our players, you know, mentally there as well as physically there as well? Yeah. And I guess that comes back to uh, if doing a bronca. I exactly know where they're at mentally and physically. And um, that workload, just uh, plug it in and over the weeks, I build that up. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not that hard. You take 
five or seven minutes and I know exactly how mentally strong they are and how physically strong they are. Um, I'll probably go the other way is I build up some running capacity and then we start some conditioning games after that. Once we've they've built some capacity, you have to earn the right to play fast. Mm, 100%. So from week to week and block to block, what are you wanting to see from GPS metrics? Are we wanting to see a, a slow increase or are we sort of riding a wave where we're going up and coming back down? Or is there anything else that you're trying to see from, yeah, week to week, but more importantly, um, block to block? So I'd say at first you're slowly building up um, a bit of volume, a bit of intensity, and then you hit a mark where uh, basically you're pretty happy by the end of your pre-season when they're coming up to trials where you've got some workload. In season, a lot of the time, you're not really rising and falling. What you're trying to do is uh, as much as you can keep it within 10%. So there's no big dips. There's no big declines. Um, Too big of an increase, too big of a decrease is people at risk. Um, so, and it, it's just finding, and look, club footy is easy. You, you've got a seven day turnaround most of the time. You train on Tuesday and Thursday, like the, the variables are so simple. They're not that complex. So you can get people in really good pattern. But what you start doing is, um, the GPS workload is never more important than the, um, wellness checking in. And it's never important more than your feel of the group or watching them warm up. Um, it adds to it. So your actual workload metrics with your GPS are just part of a puzzle as in um, how they're physically looking, how they're warming up, how they're socially interacting, how grumpy or how hard are they attacking training. That all comes part of it because if you just look at the metrics all the time, you're missing that. So you might lower it based on uh, their wellness. You don't react as well like you know, you're going to have weeks where they have poor wellness. One or two might warm them up poorly. But if you see, I used to call them canaries, which is your people that are um, like canaries in the coal mine, where they die really quickly if gas was exposed. If you see those guys that are so consistent, they're warming up poorly, um, they just can't train as hard, then you know you've got a group that needs an adjustment. So the GPS is there to help, but it can never overrule. So what I used to say is, um, plan and organize your training like you don't have wellness, like you don't have GPS, and then you add it on top of that. So sensible, organized training programs and progressions, then you add the technology and questions on top. Mm. It can be really hard to understand the playing group you know, as a whole. So if you can talk with the leadership group and really understand and and build that trust between you and that leadership group, they can come to you and say, hey, we're actually uh, feeling a bit flat. It's not just me. It it is a a common theme across the playing group or, you know, we're actually feeling quite good. Can we sort of, you know, bump up training a little bit more? So if you can really have that good relationship with the leadership group and, you know, certain plays and certain um, positions and with the teams that you're looking after, then you can really have a good guide into a training, your adjusting your training load um, that day on that session. Yeah. And look, as a performance coach or an SNC coach, yeah, you really have that advantage. Uh, um, most of the teams we do jump monitoring on that Monday, and you can pretty much see. And some of the, uh, we're flat as guys. Okay. For the next three nights, you have to get to bed an hour earlier. And you have to have ice baths after each session because you're in a bit of a hole, but you've got to get out of the hole because we have to train. So sometimes it's like 
you can push it back into the athlete's behavior and the athlete's choices to get out of the hole because everyone else in the team is fine, but you're not, you're, you're going to have to look at your lifestyle factors as well. 100%. You don't want them to, you don't want the playing group to dictate training too much because as, as coaches, we can see a bit more of the picture than they can. Um, and pushing through some of those little niggles, it, could be a good thing you know you don't want to necessarily just back off straight away you might um, keep the, the same training load as you did previous week instead of bumping it up or instead of decreasing it dramatically you do need them to understand that they might just need to push through this next week or two um, to really see the uh, end results as well yeah yeah in season um, where you can you try and make the the workload so predictable from week to week that it, you don't even notice a change. And once you've got them up to really good conditioning, um, they're so used to doing it. Um, if you brought new, you can always tell, uh, it's quite funny at Brumbies, you'd bring people in from other franchises and they would just struggle with the workload. While the other guys are cruising, you go, oh, okay, we're doing the right thing. Like these guys can't keep up. They've come from professional programs, literally the week before they're here and they're struggling. Okay, we're in a really good position. So that's, and you just keep it nice and steady like that. And every coach, every franchise, every team has a certain way of uh, training people. And sometimes it takes them a while to adapt to it. Yeah, it's a great point there for, you know, people working with just club rugby is, you know, you are going to get players just rocking up sort of four, five weeks late into the preseason. And you need to make sure that they um, don't hurt themselves. So if you're having different um, running groups when you're prescribing your, your training loads in terms of your conditioning, like you have your fast, medium and slow, making sure that you, you know, kick their ego a bit and say, hey, you actually need to go down the slow group, but they might actually be faster and fitter than you. So, you know, stay down there and slowly work your way up to where you need to be. And then with your, say, your acceleration work or your max velocity work, you know, telling them, hey, I need you to run at this speed and I need you to run at this distance because we have earned the right to be running, you know, 50-meter sprints, but you might be only at the 20-meter mark as well. So making sure that you can adjust that low because you really don't want to get a new player and then they hurt themselves within the first week or two and you, and you never see them again. They, they might have been a really good player, but you also don't want to do that, do that to them um, just in terms of, I don't know, a person, you know, because getting injured sucks. And if it's a shitty injury, then they're not going to come back. So, um, yes, definitely be smart about that and, and make sure that the, you know, the, the, the club knows as well that if, if you are new to training, this is what we expect of you. And we expect of you for the whole training session as well. If there's certain contact drills, you, you probably haven't earned the right to go on those contact drills and you need to go off to the side and do something with another coach or another play, uh, player and earn the right to get um, into that uh, drill. Yeah, and what I used to do is just say they've got a little niggle, they can't run, they can't do so. Have some off-feet equipment like a bike, rower, boxing, ready to go. But that would be twice as hard as actually being out in the group. So you'd be surprised at how many um, physical injuries or psychological uh, not wanting to push themselves and they quickly work themselves out of that group as well, A, because mm. they not living up to the standards of their, their teammates and B, uh, the off-feet conditioning is so difficult. That, uh, if you're choosing that, you know, you you know, if you're choosing to be in there, you've got a real niggle. Mm, 100%. So we have rugby union, rugby league, having so many different playing positions on the field, maybe not necessarily rugby league too much because 
a back rower can pretty much go out and play center or ring uh, wing these days because they are just very similar in, in stature and playing ability. What do you want to see from everyone in terms of achieving um, GPS metrics? Do, do, do we want it to be the same um, for the, you know, the whole group or are we wanting to be um, very position specific? But if we are too position specific, are we sort of going down uh, a rabbit hole that's maybe good or it's not so good? Um, can you sort of elaborate on that? No, definitely. You want to get down to position specific. And yeah, as you said, in rugby league, it's um they're a bit more modular, um, say from your wing into centre to back row. Um, obviously, the wing is a bit more high speed, centres a little less. The back row is more acceleration based because they're going to be hitting up the ball a lot more. Moving into your middles, who do a lot more acceleration and not quite high speed. It's funny, what I've introduced in rugby league is a lot more speed and a lot more acceleration and a lot less running, uh, sort of really long running volume. And the guys love it so much more. They accelerate into contact. If there's a line break, we're getting nine guys sprinting back, bang, then they're a set line versus before where they do slow stuff. It's really, it's impossible to run faster than you can. It's easier to run slower than you need to. But if you can't run fast, like you can't keep up with the game anymore. So you've got moving that. So a lot more acceleration-based work for the middles. Rugby union, it's it's you really need to separate it. So your front rowers, uh, your second rowers, then even your flankers. And depending how you play your, if you've got a six and an eight that are out wide, if you've got a six or a seven, um, a six and an eight that are out wide and a seven that roams, or you have a pod system, these are all determined, so your game model will make a big difference um, compared to your, your say, your, um, your number nine, who has a lot higher aerobic, it still has to be quick, so you're looking at different metrics for them. Uh, centres, again, you're looking slightly different, and your back three, a lot more max velocity um, type work, and their, their key is they've got to have serious speed, high speed, able to handle high speed and do it quite often. So, yeah, you really need to delve down, but you go from a group workload average to a um, position workload average, then you have what is world-class um, uh, physical attributes for each of your positions, and then you try to apply that to your training. So when you are applying it to training, it can you know, become quite challenging because if you're working with rugby union players, you know, you're thinking, shit, I have to set up multiple different drills. Is the way around that setting up a very similar drill for everyone, but just sort of having different targets as well? So for, say for your accelerations uh, for our big front rowers, you know, they're working on their five to 10 meters, whereas you say a back rower is working on that, say, 15 to 20 meters and so on and so forth. Is that what you're trying to do when you are setting up training drills is to make your life a bit easier yourself as the coach because you only have a certain amount of time and, and resources available for you, but you're just sort of manipulating that training drill to meet the needs and the specific um, areas of um, players' games? Absolutely. Yep, that's what you'd do. Where you, you would do that. And you're probably talking about top-up conditioning there. Like in the professional world and if you're doing a lot of team-run stuff, uh, you know, the game dictates what they do. So then you use GPS metrics to go hassle people and go, when you're doing this drill, I need you to accelerate more. You're not getting any accelerations. So don't go passive accelerate into it. Um, that's the beauty of the, the GPS. You can just go, mate, 
pick up your act in, in the middle of a session um, and or afterwards. But, yeah, in a club way, you would set up your drills like that. So you'd have, you'd just say you're doing some MAS work. Um, you might have the scenario where you set up, you, say it's 130 metres um, um, percentage of your MAS, so it's more speed, 10 seconds on off. You might have your backs doing 55 metres on 10 seconds, 10 seconds off. You might have your, your centres doing 50. While your back rollers, you might have them doing uh, a 20 out and back while your, um, your forwards that might be, you know, probably more 25 for your back rowers out and back in that period of time. While your, your forwards could be going out, um, like your front rowers and second rowers could be 20 seconds out, bouncing off the ground and coming back. That's how you'd set up your conditioning drills as you taper towards the more matching the specificity of the game. Once you've built that normal just running base, then you become more position specific to your top ups. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's something that I think some coaches can get a bit confused with, with being like, how do I make it specific to meet each target? But also I don't have, you know, the biggest oval in the world to set up all these different things. Like how do I maximize the time that I have? So it's, it's really good that you sort of cleared that up. And in regards to sort of run tech stuff, that's where it, it probably doesn't need to be, you know, too specific. I would say, um, from one to 15 it's you're working on all the same principles it's just um, you know outside backs might need to keep that run mechanics over or up to around say 60 meters compared to the front rowers but they've still got all those basic principles that you're trying to teach them it's just then when you go apply it to your conditioning drills that's when you sort of reiterate those um, um, sort of principles that you're trying to do for them is that is that something that you would say um, is what is what you're trying to do with the run tech and then putting it into yeah conditioning? Yeah, definitely. So every warm up is uh, I, if people go oh, warm up, warm warm up is your it, it, it functions as three things. Yes, it's getting people prepared for the game. Um, then it's also teaching them how to run. You introduce running mechanics, and it's also doing some mobility work. So that's your chance actually in the clubland to force them to do some mobility as part of it. So it's warming up mobility, run tech. Then it is position specific type acceleration D cell work. So uh, you can cover off a lot of things. If you just see a warm up as a warm up, you've missed probably 10 minutes of coaching them to make them better. Because if you do that three times a week, that's 30 minutes of making them better from a running mechanic and a range of motion point of view and some skills. So, yeah. And um, I can give you an example. So, with the, the rugby league guys at the moment, once we finish our warm-up on game day, just to, after they've done some contact work, just to make sure they're running, the acceleration that they have to do prior, the last thing that they have to do is based on their position. Back three have to accelerate uh, out to 30 metres. Back rowers and centres, 20 middles, 10 metres. And this is done as hard as they can. That's their last bit of preparation. But there's no reason why you can't do that at the back end of most of your warm-ups once you've done all your running mechanics. You're actually giving them the... the the skills for their position. Um, and another way of how I look at setting up your warm-ups is a progression of your running mechanics. So it's grace. You teach them how to run and run well. Once they can run and run well, you teach, get them to race each other. Oh, sorry, you give them pace. So you get them to run fast. So as the week goes on, you, they, you pick up the pace of how quickly they're running. Then they race. You get them to actually race in their position-specific work. And then chase. When people get chased, their running mechanic 
changes. So if they're running really well while being chased, you know you've really embedded their running mechanics. No, that's awesome. So if training is not meeting the goals and load you want players to meet, how do you best solve this issue? Are we looking at more of top-ups? Are we saying train a little bit extra um, towards the end? Or are we saying do some extra running um, in your own time? And what do you say to the coach as well? So um, it's, it's interesting. The, the other day I pulled um, some old folders that I had. I've got this uh, um, basically from uh, 1.2 times of Bronco Times Trials. I've got this little bit of laminated bit of paper there and I'd look at the different positions, different areas, just go, I'd look at training and go, what GPS metrics are missing? Okay, I need this many metres per minute. I need this many accelerations um, or for this position in this drill, they're missing this. Let's go do it right now. I top them up at the end, get it done. My job as a coach is to coach them there their job as an athlete when they go is to go away and look after their body and do their extras. I'm not going to give them running that we have not prepared them for to do in their own time. That's our job. If coaches will get it eventually, um, and if you can get your drills like, okay, we've missed out on 12, you know, we wanted 50 accelerations, but we've only got 35. Oh, here's a drill that's got 15 accelerations in it okay, bang, let's go do that. And how long does that drill? Oh, it's four minutes. Cool, let's get it done. Um, in your more elite setting, you don't worry about that because you always get it. You, you've you've worked it out pretty well. You might go, um, this winger or this fullback hasn't had a max velocity exposure in the last seven days. Um, it's not ideal, but let's get it done now and then we don't have to punch it into the future because this is the day to try and get it. Um, and always having that there. And sometimes... You might have some running prepared, but the coaches have gone over and they've gone more and you just go, oh, that was my drill to have. I'm not going to do that. Um, okay, what I'm going to do is my top-up will be off feet because I don't need more mechanical load, but I want the aerobic type effect for them. But I don't want to put more mechanical force on them because we've gone way past where we should have. Hmm. Seems like you already knew the next question is the same question, but uh, <laughs> if you... Are going well above the required training load. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you as a as strength and conditioning, you're. I used to see our job in that people that are listening to it can't see it, but I've got something going across from the top. Our job is a. Um, this is performance. We change everything underneath there or even above to bring it down to make sure that performance just travels across. So we act as a shop absorber. When we need an increase, we increase. If we need to decrease, we have to decrease what we're doing. And ultimately, what you do is have a good coaching staff and you influence them to increase and decrease their skill, what they do in skills. Some coaching groups are really open to it. Some don't get it, won't get it. But you want to lift trophies at the end of the year, so you'll have to do something. Yeah, and I think going above the training load is a very interesting area to sort of delve into because what happens after a game where you just got annihilated you know coaches really want to you know increase training load or say if you just got annihilated in scrums and lineouts we're going to be fucking doing a lot of scrums and lineouts come tuesday type thing and it's like okay if we're doing a lot of those we've got a lot of heavy impacts and we're probably not doing enough running as well so you really got to have a good relationship with the coaching team to make sure that, Hey, yes, we did lose on the weekend, but let's focus on the things that we can improve upon, but not overdo it because 
if we overdo it in one area, another area of our game is going to um, suffer. So you need to make sure that, you know, there's a specific training structure laid out from the preseason and what you're going to take that into the in-season. And there's some non-negotiables that need to be ticked off during the week. And, you know, after a heavy loss that you're not focusing on one area too much, but also in a win, you know, making sure that you're not dropping off because that can be also a thing people do is like, sweet, we won on the weekend. Don't really have to try hard this week because we know that we're going to put another good performance in on the weekend. Yeah. And that's a problem with players. Players go game from game. Some coaches go from game to, uh, game, to game. Um, what's the end goal at the end of the year? You, a, it would be... Yeah, to play finals and win premierships. B, it is to get as many of your players into representative teams as humanly possible. So it's you're there to enhance their career as a coaching group. You're there to get, if that means you lose players and they go up, that's fantastic because you attract more in because you're known as that group that gets people to the next level. So it's not just a premiership. You've got to get people to the next level. So sometimes at club level, you're not preparing them to play club games. You're preparing them to potentially be a professional. So your attitude towards training should be, I want you to make the professional level, not just good at this level. So you, that's that's how you get people to actually focus on the bigger picture. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the final question, because, you know, on the next episode we do of this, we're going to go more into the in-season. So this is part one of using GPS metrics and systems. The, the final question I want to ask you, which sort of... Uh, sort of gone away from my head now but um shit can i think of it again <laughs> i'm sure you can uh what is it uh, i can't even think of it now it was a really good question as well maybe i'll write it down for uh, for next time but um yeah this, this is a great episode to really understand sort of the basic principles in gps metrics and, and the systems and really understand why we're using it how we're using it and you know what are some things to focus on, but not focus too much on. And if you do have the opportunity to use GPS systems, use it, you know, and it's going to really increase your coaching ability when you're prescribing conditioning. And it's, it's going to help you sort of increase your skills and add some more tools to the toolbox, but it's also going to, going to benefit your playing group as well. Yeah. What I, if you've got a bit of time, um, probably I'll talk about my first journey using GPS, getting GPS. So, got gps um in a pre-season um actually late so it was pre-season then in season so look just measured four weeks of pre-season then four games okay didn't change what we're doing anything just deeply understood what they were punching out from that point created uh what we should focus on first thing i got rid of heart rate uh, straps means nothing heart rate couldn't care less your output is the most important thing in a game of football. What your heart rate does to do that, bad luck. <laughs> You've just got to do it. Yeah, don't worry about it. And the guys appreciated that. And I spoke to some GPS guys and I said, yeah, most people are about a year, they get rid of that and they realise that whatever. Okay. Um, then we went to, I went through all of our games and started going, we had this metrics and then uh, I got really nerdy as you do. Um, and there was metres per minute, high-speed running and so forth. And then I started chunking it down to set different variables and I called them clusters of high performance. So what it had to be, it had to be above, um, it had to be above 150% of the mean and it had to go for a minimum of three minutes. And then I 
chunk that down, bang, bang, bang. And I went, oh, there's about four or five of those in a game. Okay. Then what I did was from there, looked at each playing position and when that happened for them, I started looking at the metres per minute, the um, number of accelerations and some positions you couldn't get high-speed metrics. You could because of the way they run. Then when I went back to designing, say, running top-ups, when I went to look at the MAS component, then I went, okay, uh, look, most of this is happening at about 130 metres per minute. If I've got 10 seconds on or off um, for the outside backs, yep, they get that. Um, when I move in, oh, they need actual acceleration and they need to bounce off the ground. The guys more in the middle and get back to meet these metrics. So all of a sudden I was able to go, here's the MAS. I broke it up into position specific. And then this is a cluster of high performance. And that became the way that I would prepare teams in the off season and in season so that my top ups were at way 150% of the game, a minimum of three minutes. When we add that in and then we sort of worked out, okay, we'll put 75% of the volume around 120 to 130% of the game and then between 40 and 50% on a Thursday at a much higher intensity. We went on to one, oh, I think it was something like 40 games and we dropped probably eight or nine over the next four years. So if you get it right and you've got a good training group, it makes a massive difference. No, it's awesome. That's some uh, bonus content right there for our listeners. So thanks for joining me today, Ben. We'll do part two very, very soon and, and delve into the in-season and then any other questions that I can think of. And hopefully I can think of that one question that has eluded my mind. It's going to bug me all day if I can't think of it. What a cliffhanger to get them to the next episode. I like what you're doing there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So thanks for joining me uh, today, Ben. It's been awesome. And we'll chat very, very soon. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Elite Rugby SNC Podcast. Remember to like, subscribe, and rate Elite Rugby SNC on Spotify and YouTube, and make sure you follow us on Instagram. Sign up to come a beast via the link in the description or via Instagram page. Also, don't wait, make that good decision and join Elite Rugby SNC today and take your game to the next level.